Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. And I think, too, that, like, you hear constantly people talking about how, like, oh, I have a great idea for a cookbook, um, but I don't have the platform. I don't, you know, I talked to an agent and they said I need 10,000 more Instagram followers or whatever. And, like, if that's the only way we're giving people book deals, then books are going to get real boring real fast. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbar. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Paula Forbes, the editor behind the cookbook watchdog slash mood board slash incredible publication, Stain Page News. I've known Paula for years, and we catch up about her career. We talk about some of her work at Eater, at Epicurious, at Lucky Peach, and the world of reviewing cookbooks. Lastly, we talk about the new fall season, some of the cookbooks she's enjoying, some of the cookbooks she's not enjoying. No, actually, we talked mostly about a book she's enjoying. It's such a fun conversation. Paula Forbes, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. This is fun. I know, it's fun. I've known you for so long and we've never actually had a podcast episode. So let's do this. Let's do the Paula Forbes Taste Podcast episode. I, uh, you know, I want to talk about your career before we get to the, the busy fall season of cookbooks, you, which you cover on Stain Pages News. And, and it's one of my favorite publications that covers the cookbook industry and we'll get into that. But I want to get into your past a bit with uh, with writing. Uh, you have worked in food media for a while. And, you know, I met you when you lived in New York. You're working at Epicurious. You worked at Eater for many years. And I want to know, and you la- helped launch Eat Me Daily, which was an uh, influential early online publication. So what was it like to work in food media in like the 2010-2014 zone? Um, it was crazy. I mean, it was so much scrappier than it is now. Like everything, all the publications out there feel like digital publications, um, feel so much more polished than they were at the time. Um, I mean, I just remember like just working constantly, like writing all day, every day and like just sort of not really, um, believing that like I had access to all of these famous like when I was 25 26 had access to all these like famous chefs to interview but it was the pace was so fast that you never really like you never caught up with it you know yeah totally no exactly what you're saying it was just those early blog days were were nuts I mean there were days where I was working like what I would write like eight full-length posts and like five or six shorter posts and like that people I talk to now write, you know, two or three posts a week. I know it's, it's, it's much different and, and thank God there's been a change. I mean, you were running, is this, was that eater you're doing that high volume writing? Right. Yeah, the high volume, but um, in the later days of Eat Me Daily too, we were turning out a lot of, quite a bit of stuff. Yeah. Um, 
Epicurious was much more, you know, they had, but when I worked there, they were having, I think it was their 20th anniversary was about when I got hired and they relaunched the site and that was much, you know, they were more established and it was sort of the more modern polished type of website, but yeah. Do you feel like we're missing stories now that there isn't such high volume and, and, and we're kind of more measured. There's more work, like work life balance. Thank God. But do you feel like we're, are we missing something because we aren't like really doing that volume game? Um, I think that like you don't get as much of the fun stuff, like the hmm. the weird, funny listicles and things like that, that people used to do. Um, but like the flip side of that is that I think you see a lot of that stuff more on like TikTok or Instagram or whatever, just like people having fun with the news Um like we used to, and you know, like that, that lives more in memes and things that people are doing for fun and less on the like actual publications. Um, I'm really grateful that there's a lot more room for deep dives in food media now though. Um, you know, I remember like back in the early blog days, we were just like, I would love to write X, Y, Z piece, but I just don't have time. Um, so I think that that's a major improvement for sure. Good point on the TikTok and, and social um, content because it seems that, you know, writing a lot of words, you have to be very careful. Like you can't like sp- spray and pray, so to speak, with with writing because there just isn't the attention that there was before. I mean, I, people there's like obviously way different. We're, we're getting our content in many different ways in TikTok for especially home cooking is really powerful and, and Instagram reels. And so when we decide our editorial schedule at Taste and other, I'm sure other editors are thinking the same way, we have to really make sure it's it's good and everything is framed properly. And it just feels important because, you know, we just don't have the the readership that we used to have, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, there's still a fire hose. It's just the fire hose of information that's somewhere else, right? It's yeah. not um, in your RSS. It's not people checking your website every, you know, afternoon or whatever and expecting yeah. eight, 12 stories, the fire hoses elsewhere. Um, and, but, you know, things change. It's, it's probably for the best. Uh, I, I don't think those, that style of blogging was sustainable for anybody. Definitely agree. No, it's for the best. I'll agree with you. But you pivoted your interests uh, during this time. I mean, you were covering the news and covering celebrity chefs and all that world, but you also really got into cookbooks and you clearly um, have a real love for cookbooks. And I, I want to know, um, do you have more love now or do you feel like you maybe had a little bit more passion back then and it's waned? I mean, I think it's different, right? Like I I am st- I still surprise myself at my ability to get excited about a cookbook. Like I will still stumble upon um, something I haven't seen before and just like lose you know, an afternoon just digging into a book that showed up um, in the mail. Um, so like if I ever lose that, I'll I'll be, I think, um, that, that'll be the sign, you know, that it's time to do something else. But um, I'm really thankful that I still have that mode to go into that someone is um, explaining how to cook something in a way that is new or interesting or refreshing. Um, so that's still happening. Um, so that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know. It all started with cookbooks. Like I grew up, was raised, educated to think that like you can learn most things in co- from a book. Um, and yeah. so that's where it all started was just like, I wanted to learn um, how to cook. So I just sought out the best books about that. Um, and then I just got, you know, fell down a huge rabbit hole. <laughs> 
I've seen your collection. I've been to your house. I've seen I've seen the books that you have on your shelf, and it's definitely a rabbit hole is an understatement. It's you have a real passion, but you also come from academics, and I know you you wanted originally to be work in academia and and kind of pursue that route. And I think with your reviews, you you obviously take it very seriously, like it like like it would be an academic paper in many ways. But you of course write it lively and cool, but. I mean, you come from the world of books, right? I mean, that's like your your focus. Yeah. Um, so yeah, originally I wanted to like study cookbooks as literature, um, do literary theory, um, sort of uh, rhetoric is maybe a stretch, but like just looking at how do recipes work, what is a recipe as a as a unit of literature. Um, can you is can you teach someone how to cook something through text? Like, what does it mean? Is it the same dish as like what the writer makes in their kitchen? Like all of that kind of stuff is what I find really fascinating about cookbooks, um, which I think <laughs> sometimes like, uh, you know, when I write things about cookbooks, I think I'm looking at very different things than, you know, your average home cook will. Yeah. Like I, you know. Um, I'm more interested in are we trying are we experimenting with the format to uh, teach someone in a different way, ideally like a more useful way or uh, efficient way? Um, you know, I'm less concerned with like, is this an easy dish <laughs> or you know that kind of thing? Although that's right, important. Right. Yeah, I think that you have multiple uh, objectives with the cookbook as a form, right? And 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 certainly you you dive into many elements in Stain Pages News. And when you're you're releasing your fall previews right now, and we'll get to a lot of the fall season. I want to talk to you about big and small books, but um, I agree with you. I think there's definitely many different ways to to look at a cookbook, and many times it's not about quick and easy because the internet is here for that kind of work. And we we just talked about TikTok and Reels. That's the quick and easy. That's really satisfying. Uh, those those needs, but of course the cookbook does much more than teaches you how to cook, right? I I write cookbooks myself, and and we certainly want people to cook from our books, but we feel the feedback we get from our readers is certainly not does it work, does it not work. It's like you've they've we've taught them something, right? Right, and there's so much more to it, um, you know, and that's not even until you start talking about design and photography, um, you know, like that adds so much to the educational value, but also, you know, the the book itself as a as a object of beauty. Um, I, I have um, a book designer who freelances for Stain Page News occasionally, um, Francis Baca, who I'm so thrilled is writing for me because um, that's like, I don't have a background in design at all. Like I know what I like and I can look at a book mm-hmm. and be like, that seems like a well-designed book. But um, like ha- being able to have someone who can speak to that um, from a point of expertise is Really fascinating. I've learned a lot just from, you know, editing her work. So I love that element of the of the news. Um, speaking of learning a lot, you covered books for Epicurious, for Lucky Peach, for Eater. You reviewed books. Um, you offered criticism for books, but you had not written your own book. But you are now you've written your own book. You're working on a couple other books, too. So you're actually have been gone through the full the, the the meat grinder, pun intended, when it comes to writing a book, do you feel, I've never asked you this, I don't think, but I, I do you feel like now that you've done a book and you know the whole process, do you feel like, are you a little more empathetic? Do you feel like maybe you were unfair previously or is it different? I mean, where you were a critic and maybe it didn't matter if you knew what went into a book. 
Yeah, um, that is a good question. I mean, that is one of the reasons I wanted to write a book, right, is so that I knew everything that went into the process. I think that the thing I took away, the biggest thing I took away from that process is like how many fingers are in the pot of each book, pardon the pun, Um, Mm -hmm. but just that like, you know, when I used to review cookbooks, I sort of, um, I don't think I understood that quite to the degree that I do now, but just that like I would use the author's name as shorthand for the parties responsible for writing the book, for producing the book. But like I was saying, you know, design is such an important aspect. Um, Photography, typeface, layout. Like one of the biggest complaints a lot of people have about cookbooks is like if a recipe is split across two pages um, and the author doesn't have anything to do with that often. So I think I have a greater appreciation for who and what goes into the production of a cookbook um, beyond just the writing. Um, You know, that said, every publisher is totally different. The methods are totally different. Um, So, you know, you can't really say anything universal about that if you're going to review a cookbook. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. Yeah. And I think um, a lot of times uh, the author is the name that is attached to the book. And it makes sense because in most forms of writing and literature and publishing, it is uh, the author who's responsible for most of it. Look at nonfiction, non-illustrated nonfiction, or obviously fiction. There's not many design elements in fiction, so it is truly on the back of the of the author. But yeah, like a lot of a lot of authors go into the process. And I talk to a lot of authors when they're working on their books. You know, they don't know about design. They don't come from an editorial background. They the writers are just food writers. Sometimes they're not they've never actually worked on a photo shoot. So it's like really it's a huge learning curve, I think, for a lot of even experienced journalists who haven't actually done anything like a book or anything with art direction. It can be extremely frustrating and challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's what I'm doing with the rest of my days, uh, coming up with a shot list based on a table of contents for a book that's about two thirds written. So I'm going to live that life today. But no, I was just going to say you asked if I thought I was like unfair or whatever. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that like at the end of the day, like the harshest I've ever criticized anyone is based on whether recipes work or not. And I think that, I think that's still fair. I think that like recipes should be tested thoroughly and like they need to work. Um, I, I, I haven't really ever dinged anyone on anything other than, well, occasionally some things other than that, but like those are my harshest criticisms. Yeah, and I still yeah. think they're fair. Absolutely agree with you. I think recipes should work. Oftentimes, uh, that's the biggest focus of an author's work and time is making sure the recipes work. Um, fully agree. And that shot list, what's what's the book? I have to ask. I mean, you brought it up. What's the book you're working on? Um, I Well, this hasn't really been announced yet. I'm working on a book um, with Steve McHugh in San Antonio. It's uh, I can't tell you tons about it, sure. but um, it's, it's about uh, like how, how to cook with preserved foods. Got it. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it's a topic that certainly has been covered, and I think it, it never really captures the full spirit of it. I think there's always going to be nuance and a point of view with fermentation depending on your cultural background and your geography and – I love that. What a what a cool project. Are you going to go back to reviewing? I know you with Stain Pages News you don't review re- uh, books per se. You're you're covering uh, releases and you're you're doing some feature writing as you mentioned you have a design writer and you have other writers and you do these robust previews. Are you going to go back to reviewing anytime or do you feel like that maybe is your, a previous phase of your career? 
I mean, I would love to. The problem with reviews is that to do them properly, to do them fairly, they're very expensive to produce. Um, they take a lot of time. And then also, obviously you have to test recipes. So like that also costs money. Um, and I don't have the bandwidth to do it. I would love to pay freelancers to do it, but, um, I, I'm just not there yet. Um, I don't know. I do some sort of touching on that kind of thing. Like when I do the fall cookbook preview, I will, I will call out, books that I'm more excited about than, you know, like my top 10 for the fall or whatever, but those aren't reviews necessarily, but I'm not, not critical. If that makes, you know, no, you, you're, 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 you're booster, you're boosting, you're, you're signal boosting a lot of the, the indie and and self-published as well, which I think is really special about steam pages. You're not just um, writing about the big, the big publishers, but you're covering the world of cookbooks and, I have to just got to give respect to what you were doing at Epi and 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 Lucky Peach and what you know Foo Fifty Two was doing with the Piglet um, competition because you're right it is expensive to review cookbooks it's a huge undertaking and it's time and just resources and and so the fact that you were doing that work I you got to give respect to it. Thank you. I would love to get back to that. We'll see. Let's talk about the new season. Uh, we're approaching the fall season. We're, we're recording this in uh, in mid August, and um, I, you know, I work. The disclosure is obvious that uh, I work at Penguin Random House, and Taste is you know is a production um, within Random House Publishing Group. Though we of course cover the world of food and and cover all cookbooks, and I also write books here at Penguin Random House and. Harper Collins, Harper Wave. So that's my disclosure when we have these conversations about books I like and books that you like. But also, I'd just like to zoom out a little bit about the cookbook business. Um, are you feeling the list that you see coming out for the fall? Um, are you excited about books more than ever? Are you feeling uh, that we have gotten past the pandemic and some of these books are not feeling like pandemic books? Or are we still kind of in that pandemic zone? Yeah, um, it's funny you bring that up. Uh, the new Ina Garten that's coming out is her, like, it's basically her pandemic book, right? It's um, her, like, I reassessed how I cook over the course of the mm-hmm. pandemic, and now here is my, here's how I came out of that. So it's not, it's not as pandemic-based as Rachel Ray's pandemic one was, but it is definitely a response to that. Um, that said, I think... I think we are starting to come out of that. Like, I think last year was more stuff that felt very um, born of the pandemic. Um, you know, book publishing is a long, long process, and I'm sure we'll have a book or two every year for the next several. <laughs> but uh, I think I think that there are, this fall there are individual titles I'm excited about, but across the board, I'm kind of... I don't know the season there's across some, some years it's like, I look at all of the books and I'm like, Oh my God. And this year I'm a little bit less. Oh my God. I appreciate that. You know, I think that having, you have a lot of experience and you have many years. um, So behind you and you know, when something feels hot and when it doesn't. So what, what that, so articulate that. I'm curious when you say it's maybe feeling like a lighter year or a, a down year, as some would say, this is my words. Uh, what, what, why, or, or, or what, what, what do you, what do you mean? So I think that like, I think that what's happening is that you have these, because of how the internet works these days, you have these sort of like fractured, um, pots of attention 
Um, so you keep seeing, I keep seeing these books announced that, um, you know, so-and-so is the, the person who launched, you know, XYZ brand and it's a food brand. And then I look at their YouTube or their TikTok and they have, you know, 14 million subscribers on YouTube. And I'm like, who is this person? I've never heard of this person, but 14 million people have heard of this person, you know? Um, And there's just more and more and more books coming out that are based on these like sort of cross-platform brands that have a lot of followers. But like, if you are not already hip to them, then, um, then, then who are these people? Like, I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the, the flip side of that is is people who don't have those platforms who have something more interesting to say off or you know like something specific to say something a book that's you know they're writing because it's the thing they know deeply um those kinds of books are more interesting to me um mm-hmm. i'm a longtime fan of restaurant cookbooks and people just aren't making them anymore like i i think i have like 12 restaurant cookbooks in the fall preview this year something like that 12 15 um, you know, and so I miss those, but you know, they don't sell as well, I guess, as restaurants, it's a fraught business. And certainly to invest in a restaurant cookbook, you have to, you know, really believe in the restaurant sticking around. It's a little bit riskier. You know, there's that I, I love restaurant cookbooks personally as well. And they can be some of the the strongest books editorially and visually. Um, you've sent over a few titles. Um, we're previewing this before all of your previews are out. And I'll, of course, link to Stain Page News in the show notes and link to many of your previews. Where should we begin? I, I think you've talked about uh, you've given me some 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 questions to, to ask you. But like, we're, let, let's start with one that you want to talk about, either a book or a category. Um, well, let's start with the Masa book um, yeah, yeah. by Jorge Gaviria. Um, so he's, uh, behind Masienda, which is, um, you know, like they, they, um, make masa and masa Mm -hmm. products. Um, I am very interested in this because I don't know if this is happening where you live, but I live in Austin, Texas. And like a thing we're seeing more and more with the very exciting taquerias, um, like Nixta, who the chef at Nixta just won, um, best new chef at the James Beard Awards, Mm -hmm. but, um, they're doing their own tortillas. Like that's a hallmark of like some some of the newer more exciting taquerias around where I live so I think I think that having a book on this like you know restaurants start trends and then and then you see the book come out and then you start to see people doing it at home um and I think that this is a really cool book um that will help people make not just tortillas but I'm looking at the little right up here it says um tamal gnocchi masa waffles shrimp and masa grits like that's just fun yeah I think it's really cool that you could go seek out masa harina in your ne- in your neighborhood. Either if you live in a big city or small, you could probably find fresh masa, uh, or you could buy you know instant masa as well and make these recipes and and really think about projects and like making your own pressed tortillas. It, talk about a fun weekend project. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think also hopefully you know it opens a door for um, more uh, taquerias to do it too. If you know they're maybe not familiar with the process of making their own masa and all yeah, that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, books that open doors like that are not always going to excite me. Hundred percent. One author that does open doors and has been for a while is Olia Hercules, and I think you've mentioned there's a new Olia Hercules book out. Olia Hercules, um, talk about her importance in the in the food writing world right now. 
Yeah, so Ole Hercules is, um, she was born in Ukraine and lives in London, and um, her previous books have all been about Ukrainian food, um, and obviously right now, you know, Ukraine is a big topic, um, and she has become, like, very outspoken against uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and, um, you know, kind of a, a leader in in talking about that online, and in, you know, media and stuff like that, um, so that's why I think it's really interesting that the the book that she's coming out with this fall is called Home Food, um, and it's it's her first book that's not exclusively about Ukraine. Um, it's about uh, you know all of the it's it's a hundred recipes that she makes at home, and they're all influenced by um, various places that she's lived or that are important to her in some way. Um, Ukraine, Ukraine, Cyprus, Italy, and England are the ones listed um, in the subtitle. But um, and then her husband shot the photography, so I think it's just like a lovely personal cookbook that's coming at what is a difficult time for her personally and Ukrainians everywhere. So I think that that could be just like a very, I don't know, heartfelt personal book. There's definitely going to be some mentions of the the conflict, I'm sure, at least in the press that she does. And she's been a thought leader for years about food of that region and huge fan of her book. I'd like to have her on the podcast eventually. You mentioned uh, Adelangi's mentees. I think I had Ista Belfridge on the podcast and just recorded with her. And you talk about the OTK series, uh, Adelangi Test Kitchen series, which is off and running. Um, it seems like there are many individuals stepping out, out of Yodam's uh, shadow and doing their own thing. Yeah, um, I think it's really interesting. And I think it's great that he's like using his name and his, you know, clout as a um, cookbook author to kind of introduce these um, these names. And, you know, so you said um, Sammy Tamimi did the Palestine book um, two years ago, three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, Tara Wigley is another one, uh, another one of these people who um, she does baking. She worked on, I want to say sweet. Um, and then um, the OTK test kitchen, the Odalungi test kitchen, he co-authors with Norm Murad, but also just like all of these people um, who he's worked with for years. So I think it's a really interesting model. You don't see that often from celebrity chefs, like um, putting that effort into, uh, you know, raising the profile of the people who they've worked with for years. And I think it's, I think it's nice. Yeah, man. The big why. You got to shout out Yodam for doing things truly the right way and, and boosting his staff and being a really a real mensch when it comes to to supporting. And But like, let's talk about his books, like in general, or, or the OTK books or any book with his name on it. I mean, they truly are some of the most well-tested and thorough cookbooks that you're going to find in terms of recipe development and writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also they do really well because at this point, people uh, know what they're going to get and they know if they like it. And, um, he has such a distinctive style of food, um, that, that an Odalenki book comes out and people are like, oh, well, I know that I like how he cooks. And so now here's, you know, 80, hundred more recipes that are new to me, but are in the same style. And yeah. So let's talk about TikTok cookbooks because I feel like there's a lot to be said. There's a lot of data yet to be compiled. If, you know, do they work? Do they not work? Are we doing too many? Are we doing too few? Is it really engaging? Is it the right transfer from of energy from, you know, your phone to a to a 80 recipe, 300 page book? Um, we've had plenty of TikTok creators on the show. I guess your general thoughts on the TikTok to cookbook trend we're seeing. 
Yeah, I think I think that um, you you're spot on that the formats don't are not necessarily analogous, right? So, like, I think it is very interesting. Um, I think that it's too soon to say because the people that we're seeing, the books we're seeing now, are all from sort of the original TikTok food stars. Like, you have Tabitha Brown's book is coming out this fall. She was the first TikTok um, cookbook deal I encountered um and it's coming out this fall because it was a two book deal she did a memoir first um and then the korean vegan book and um papio tools book mm-hmm. um and all three of those are like early tiktok stars um who did food who like weren't doing food for tiktok does that make sense like they weren't yeah. like yeah. they're were good cooks regardless um and and tick they happened to like be good at TikTok. But now I think you're seeing a lot more people who are doing food to TikTok, like uh, like uh, specialized to the TikTok algorithm and all of that. And I'll be, those are the ones that I think are the test. Do you, does that make sense? Like people yeah, who are yeah. not necessarily good cooks, they're just doing it because they want to be TikTok stars, become TikTok stars. All of the recipes are like, um, like the viral trends and like the hacks and all of those things that you see all over TikTok. Um, and I think we haven't seen enough of those come out and that'll be the test of whether it works or not. But um, I think that like for people like Tabitha Brown and Poppy O'Toole, like those totally make sense to me that they would write awesome cookbooks. Oh yeah, definitely. And like the Korean book, vegan book, I fully agree that that wasn't a TikTok book. I mean, never was. I mean, she had a huge YouTube following, but also it was such a book that was singular to her story and she happened to have a lot of TikTok fans, but she certainly wrote that book. Yeah, that's my take too. I think it's really too early to, to tell and I wouldn't ever want to make a judgment call, but I think it will be very interesting to see if the the TikTok first creators, those cookbooks will, will start, you know, seeing some heat. Um, you talk about a lot of anniversary books are coming out, meaning like 30-year anniversaries. Do we have an appetite for these anniversary books and what, what's coming out? I don't know. I think it's interesting. Okay, so the the three big books is Crescent Dragon Wagons, Dairy Hollow House Soup and Bread has a 30th anniversary book coming out. If you're unfamiliar with Crescent Dragon Wagon, um, you should get familiar because she is a character. Um, she's <laughs> yes. just like a super prolific author. She writes like not just cookbooks, she writes novels, she writes like everything. Um, and um, but like I love her books because her cookbooks, because the recipes are always written like very generous and like um I don't know, they just like leave space for you to mess up or like tell you what mm-hmm. to look out for and use more words. Um, to like make sure that you're staying with her through the recipe. Um, so I think that that's why that has um, staying power and 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 needs a reissue. Um, Marcella Hazan's Essentials of Classic Italian Cooking is coming out. Um, again, being reissued, obviously that's, you know, an all-timer. Um, it has a new forward by Lydia Bastianich. As featured on The Bear, totally in the cookbook stack and Carmi's cookbook stack. I know, I know. We should do a whole podcast on Carmi's cookbook stack. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and another one is Better Homes and Gardens uh, is releasing a 100th anniversary of yeah, the yeah. Red Plaid cookbook, which is wild. Um, I think that these are good. I think that like a lot of the time th- there can be books that are um, hard to have access for when they're out of print for a long time. The thing that I would worry about is like, 
you know, you see what happens in like TV and film where it's just like everything is recycled IP and I would never want that to happen to cookbooks. But I think if it's just, you know, putting something like uh, Marcella Hazan in front of a new generation of readers, I think that's fabulous. Love it. I think new generation of cookbook fans and collectors are being reintroduced all the time to uh, some of the the earlier cookbook authors and the, you know, the, the first wave of celebrity cookbook authors. And I, I love it. I so support it. And I think... Marcella Hazan getting into her head a little bit it can, can only help a young home cook. Love it. Love it. Yeah, she's one of those great writers about um, how to think about food. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think she writes, it is psychological. You're right, the way that those books are written in, in her voice. And I, I feel like her and her husband, the way that those books came out, came up, came upon uh, readers is, and home cooks is really special and unique. Um, let's talk about Taiwanese cookbooks because there are a few – uh, the Winsome cookbook that Kathy Airway uh, wrote, uh, co- co- collaborated on. Uh, she's a columnist at Taste, big fan of Kathy's work, and I can't wait to read that book. And then we have uh, Taiwanese American Home, or my, my sorry, my Taiwanese American Home. I got that wrong with Frankie Ga, and you know Frankie's going to be on the podcast soon. So yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that these are great. I don't know. Um, I love, I love, I love Taiwanese food. Um, I I thought it was interesting that both of these are not Taiwanese. They're Taiwanese American cookbooks. Yeah. Um, so like, I think that that's, that's very cool that we're starting to see these more like diaspora cookbooks come out. Um, you know, it's not just Taiwanese food, but you, you're seeing that across um, several different uh, culinary traditions. Um, but yeah, I think that the, I think that like Taiwanese food is having a bit of a moment and, you know, it's fabulous. So I'm excited for yeah, both yeah. of these books. I think there's room for both of them in the market. Um, you know, one is a little bit more restauranty, obviously. Um, the other one's a little bit more home cook oriented, but, um, yeah, I think they both look really fun. Have you gotten your hands on any advances of these, uh, any big celebrity chef books, any of the big, big names that we may uh, you mentioned Ina. You mentioned um, you know the the big multi uh, uh, book authors that we that we see come out every couple years. Have you are you excited about any of these, or is it too early to say? Yeah, I'm excited about Ina Garten's book. I'm really excited about Melissa Clark's um, Dinner in One, Dinner at One, Dinner in One, Dinner in One. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just like she's another one of those people like Odalangi who like people know her food, they love her food and like a book comes out, it's just like a no brainer. They're going to buy it. But um, I also think this one could be just like more, there might be more interest in it because people love one pot cooking. Um, So I think, or like one dish dinners and things like that. So I think that that's good. Melissa is great. I, I, she's on the show uh, soon and I really Love this book. I love Dinner, her 2017 book. It was one of my favorite cookbooks of the last decade. And Melissa Clark book is truly singular, and 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 they always uh, are written so they just they're compact, but they seriously work, and they seriously get the get to the root of the recipe and the root of the idea quickly, which I love about her. Mm -hmm. That's a really good way to put it. I think it's just how people cook. You know, it's she she her recipes are how people cook, but they're just, you know, a little bit better. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So let's talk about, uh, generally speaking, are you seeing any gaps in in cookbook uh, publishing right now? Are you seeing any topics? I love asking this question to cookbook store owners and retail folks, but I want to ask you, like, are you seeing anything that our market is, is needs? 
Yeah. Um, so, I mean, ugh, the market needs. Yeah. Maybe maybe not the most articulate question, but like maybe it's more like your own interests. I guess the, I use the market needs as like something that you'd ask a retail channel because they clearly get requests all the time, but you ne- don't necessarily do that. So I'll rephrase and just say something that you personally uh, that you think it would be great to see editorially that you maybe haven't seen. Yeah. So with with my cookbook critic hat on, I will say I would just love to see people doing weirder stuff. (laughs) Shorter, like I think shorter, more experimental books could be really fun. Um, Books that are not like that don't take the form of the recipe so formally, so like rigid, Um, just like artsy, weird books I'd love to see. Um, the, The one thing that I've always like my white whale, and I don't think I'm the person to write this book, but someone out there is, is a book that's like how to run a kitchen mm-hmm. as a, so like, you know, if you're experienced home cook, you have a whole system. You save chicken bones in your freezer for stock. You, um, you know, know that if you make this particular tomato sauce that you will use the leftovers for this particular dish. Like you, you fall into a rhythm and like, sometimes it's seasonal and, um, you know, every year at the holidays, you make X and then you, you know, make Y. Like, for example, I make a plum liqueur. Plums are in season here in May. Um, I make the plum liqueur. And then at Christmas, I make, um, I give it out with like a bottle of champagne. So you can do like a little cocktail with the plum liqueur and the champagne. And then I make thumbprint cookies out of the the leftover plum jam. Wow. What a fun, you're, you've got like lucky friends, Paula. You've got, this is like such great gifting. Love it. Thank you. But anyway, my point is that like, I would love a book that was how to run a kitchen. Mm -hmm. That's like, instead of individual recipes, it would have individual recipes, but like think of the whole book as a recipe for like your kitchen instead of like for kitchen management. Um, And I haven't seen that cracked. I mean, I've seen a couple of times and like often cookbooks will have a chapter dedicated to sort of this idea. but I think it would be really cool to see a whole cookbook that was, here's the system, put yeah. it in place. Is there a food writer out there or a creator who you think really could carry a long form book and just you would love to see, just read more of that writer? I think Eric Kim was, for me, was somebody who I'd been reading and edit got to edit a few times and back before he had the book deal, I was like, oh yeah, that would be like, Eric, that'd be a great book. And I'm glad he's writing books. Like for you, are there other folks that you read often in food media that you think should do a cookbook? Yeah, for sure. Uh, the easy answer that comes to mind is Solejo. Um, they're working on a book with someone. I had it open in a tab, but um, I would love a solo title because Soleil used to work in restaurants and could do it. Um, who else? I guess like I'm tired of seeing the same names recycled. And so like, this is kind of a cop-out answer, but I just want like more new names, more new people. Um, I'm trying to think, Eric, Eric is a good answer to that too. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you definitely uh, want to see fresh names. And I think it's great that um, the editors for all the publishers, both Indian and majors are actively, I talk to editors all the time and they're actively reaching out to, to young writers. They're reading the pages of Taste and seeing young names on their bylines and hopefully reaching out. I agree with you. It, it's it's really exciting when you can um, make that connection between a young writer and an editor. Um, so I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. 
And I think too, that like you hear constantly people talking about how like, oh, I have a great idea for a cookbook, um, but I don't have the platform. I don't, you know, I talked to an agent and they said I need 10,000 more Instagram followers or whatever. And like, if that's the only way we're giving people book deals, books are going to get real boring real fast. I agree. When I, and I, I misspoke when I said young writer, because I, I don't, I don't like to tend to, to be ageist like that. I, I said that and I, I would say like, you, maybe you're, you're not quote unquote young, but you're young to the game. So maybe there's a young to the game writer, someone who maybe hasn't been published as much. Uh, I, I encourage all ages and all, all you know, all backgrounds to to start writing about food, and maybe you'll you'll you know strike gold on something. And, and there's a cookbook in your future, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about a chef? I feel like chefs are you know we're seeing less and less restaurant books, and I, I think that that's that's just a real economic decision from the publishers. But I feel like chefs are just can write some of the most incredible books because they have such a unique observation with food and they live it in a different way. And of course they just, they, they come up with just these ideas that certainly not like a recipe developer might not actually come up with. Um, yeah. And I think the answer to that is that we got to stop looking for chef and restaurant cookbooks in New York and LA. Like I love New York and LA. They have fabulous food scenes, but like, when you start going to the middle of the country, to other parts of the coast, to the south, you start getting people who have like their own stories to tell that are, you know, fresh and um, new and uh, on different topics. Like I would love more barbecue books, for example, that aren't just, you know, the the traditional barbecue. I have the fun barbecue books. Um, I would love, more, you know, we're both from the Midwest, so I yeah. would love more Midwestern <laughs> restaurants to get book deals. And I think that actually I'm starting to see a little bit more coming out of Chicago. Um, like this fall, we have Greg Wade from Public and Quality Bread is doing a bread book. We also have guests in the Taste Podcast, Paula. If you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of budget, meaning you have an unlimited budget, or time, meaning you have unlimited time, no deadline, no worries about editor harping on you, could be a 10-year project. Paula, what would that book be? Okay, so the first thing that comes to mind is um, my partner Raphael is from Brussels originally, and there aren't really any good, well, there are a few, but not like huge Bible tomes on Belgian cooking, Belgian food. So I would love to do that, but that would be like, that would be a huge process that would require probably moving there for a few years. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. But it's not that. And it's, you know, the same thing as in France or, you know, any other country in Europe where every small town has their own pastry specialties and like their own sauces they put on steak and all of the things. Well, Brussels, they just, I mean, about, Belgium, you just pay, people pay more for food, right? People just covet it more. Yeah, I think that there is an attention to quality there um, that that is really important um, to the food, for sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. The second book is weird. <laughs> okay, so I started thinking a lot about the idea of fictional cuisines at one point. Like, <laughs> what would a fictional cookbook look like? Um, and so I started playing with this idea and then, um, in the number seven subs book by Tyler Cord, um, the super upsetting book cookbook about sandwiches, he has a sandwich called, uh, the Wisconsin, Texas border that is like sausage and michelada mayo and cilantro on a hard roll. 
Um, and so that got me thinking about, because I'm from Wisconsin and I live in Texas, like what would the fictional cuisine of the Wisconsin-Texas border look like? Um, so that's another, and I almost wrote that during the pandemic, uh, like during 2020. Um, but then I realized I had to make actual money. You mean you wrote, you almost wrote that book proposal? Yeah. Like I have, I have a spreadsheet with recipes. Give us one, one, give us one. (laughs) Oh, just like doing queso, but like doing it as like a beer cheese or like, um, doing Wisconsin style old fashioned with mezcal, like that kind of stuff. I love it. You know, I, I think about this uh, in the conversation of fusion, and I, I've been really thinking about writing, working on uh, Korea World, uh, our follow-up for Koreatown, and thinking about the word fusion and how, you know, we embrace fusion now. I think that's it certainly isn't uh, a negative term. And when you talk about fusing two cultures together, but doing it in a creative way and an artful way, and of course, a delicious way, it's it's exciting. It isn't hackneyed. It isn't trite. It isn't forced. It's it's something new. It's a new cuisine. And so having like fictionalized borders, like or 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 even like cultures that maybe aren't natural bedfellows, and writing cool recipes around it, I think it's like really dope. And I love that you're thinking about this. I mean, you know, and it is fictional and it isn't right. But like that is my lived experience. Is yeah. I write a lot about Texas food, but I live in Austin and or, you know, I'm from Wisconsin. And like, what does that look like? What it, you know, I, this is also like a sort of a brain exercise at getting mm-hmm. like, what is my food? Because I spend so much of my life cooking other people's food because I'm developing recipes or I'm you know, reviewing cookbooks or whatever. And so like, what, what does my food look like? And I think it looks a little bit like the Wisconsin, Texas border. So hope you write this book. I love both states dearly. I went to college in Wisconsin. I love this Paula. Paula Forbes, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. (laughs) Thank you for having me. This was very fun. Tanya Holland, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm uh, really excited to talk about California Soul, and uh, I've I've had a chance to read through it, and and I have a physical copy, and I'm I'm just absolutely the photography is is wonderful, and the, yeah. and the reportage and the reporting you did, it's it's stunning. Thank you so much. I am really proud of it, and you know it's it's a result of a great team. Aubrey Pick, the photographer, just did a great job with the people and the place and the feeling that I wanted. The design team captured the colors. Um, I had some writers assist me in producing the content as well. Editors and literary agent. It just really, everything was in sync on this book. Yeah, I I could just tell that the story is personal. It's your story, and yes. we'll get into your 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 journey from New York over to the West Coast. But you also are highlighting farmers and makers and producers and cowboys and all sorts of individuals in California. How how did you cast all the characters in the in the book that you profile? Well, yeah, you're right. To your first point, this is my most personal cookbook. This is my third cookbook. Um, you know, the first one was really. Uh, kind of uh, take off from the show I was doing on the Food Network. The second one was all about the restaurant and that community. And this is a lot of my story and family history and, um, you know, how California has influenced my cooking since I've been out here for, um, you know, 21 years. Um, So how we picked the makers, I mean, some of them 
I know personally, um, uh, I know, you know, Kebe from Red Bay Coffee and Mac from Vision Cellars. Some are, you know, I've had their product, but not met them directly. And then um, Maria Hunt, who worked on the book, also did a lot of research. Uh, we just wanted to have a, a nice variety and range of offerings just to show the diversity of African-American producers in uh, the mm-hmm. state of California. Yeah, it does such a great job of, of just highlighting new new faces and just really cool cool products and concepts. And um, mm-hmm. going back to your history, uh, you write in the book about the Gourmet Club, mm-hmm. which was a five-family dinner club that your parents started while living in New York in the 1960s. It sounds so cool and modern. <laughs> six families total, and um, or six couples, and... The seventies. I'm not quite that old. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Yeah, they started. Good, good to in, correct that. They started in the early seventies. Um, okay. But you know, they were still obviously what had happened in the sixties with uh, you know um, just the the up, uprising and you know racial tension and all or all sorts of things was really fresh for them, and they you know decided to make this club intentionally three white couples and three black couples, we didn't have more diversity than that in the community at the time. There weren't other, you know, immigrants or, but that was still pretty progressive for that time. Um, And so, yeah, I just always grew up knowing that people would get along at the table. And so it's just been kind of my mission in life and uh, my, my work in life that I've done. Too. So three black families, three white families coming together on a regular basis. Do you do you remember? Did you ever hear stories about the type of food that was being served at Gourmet Club? Yeah, I mean, I was often there when my parents hosted because um, I was the only child, and so they didn't, you know, get a babysitter, and that was my dinner for the night. So I grew up eating, you know, some such a diverse um, repertoire of food. And flavors that it just seemed, you know, kind of normal to me. And I guess it's always left me, my palate has been very open and diverse. I actually cook more like this cookbook than the last one, which was based on the restaurant, because the restaurant creates a little bit of limitations because you are just cooking for the public and the public uh, palate. And, you know, it was a concept of soul food that was very uh, rooted in traditions. Um Whereas this one, I think, brings in, a, you know, a lot more of um, all my different experiences and, you know, again, the diversity of what is offered here in California in terms of um, produce that's available and um, and just like the influences of different cultures that just at your regular grocery store, you know. I would like to talk about the Great Migration, which is uh, absolutely a thread that runs throughout the book. And I'd like to get your thoughts on how, you know, the Great Migration affected the food of California. And my question is, is, you know, are there any dishes that you consider Californian, big air quotes there, that are clearly inspired by black foods of the South? Well, I think, you know, the California barbecue, I mean, people love to barbecue and grill whether it's tri-tip or pork or ribs, you know, I mean, that was definitely brought out, out this way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just like some of the seafood uh, flavors and dishes and um, you know, a lot of it hasn't been 
commercialized, you know, it kind of stays within the communities uh, that are, that are, you know, predominantly black or that were. Um, but I, I know that, you know, my maternal great aunts and uncles who came out here, I mean, they were making gumbo out here with ingredients, you know, that they brought, they might have to, um, you know, bring in the filet powder, yeah. uh, from Louisiana, but, you know, okra grows well out here and, um, probably more was planted because, um, you know, the African-American populations, because the only other, I mean, besides Africa and India, I mean, you don't really see okra in a lot of other cuisines. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, uh, to your point, uh, barbecue is a food that there's a real Southern California barbecue style, mm-hmm. I feel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we we just did the Bloodsoes book. We talked about that book on the pages of taste and mm-hmm. cool book there. But, you know, it's, you know, I got, I was introduced to Southern California barbecue through watching Snoop Dogg, watching Doggy Style mm-hmm. in 1993. <laughs> and just like, wow, there's a lot of barbecue happening. This looks amazing. Mm-hmm. Look, you can just like smell it while looking at the videos. So let's talk about Southern California barbecue. Is there like a style that you that you can articulate? Um, let me think. I, when I think of it, you know, it's funny because when I got out here, I realized a lot of people prefer to barbecue, but it's really like they're grilling, you know, there's like the difference between the adjective and the noun, you know, they're just like, they're (laughs) grilling and they're like, Oh, I'm going to a barbecue. Oh, it's, it's a barbecue. But, um, and you know, you can make delicious meats over like, you know, a grill in a short period of time. But then when you think about the really, like the, the slow cooked, you know, wood smoked, I mean, when I got here, everyone's like, you have to go to Everett and Jones and Casey and, there was a history of um, just down San Pablo Avenue in Oakland, like all these different uh, Flint's um, barbecue joints mm-hmm. that, you know, people had a lot of um, nostalgia around. Um, and I think a, you know, tomatoey red sauce and, you know, could be because tomatoes grow really well in California and there's a lot of tomato product out here. Um, really a, a more of a balance between sweet and savory. I mean, definitely, not as many uh, dry rubs as Texas or Kansas and definitely not as vinegary and mustardy as, um, you know, parts of Tennessee and North Carolina, but, mm-hmm. you know, um, still like really good. So that's, that's kind of what yeah, I saw. I mean, when I had my barbecue <laughs> restaurant, I kind of did it tiny style and did like a little bit of everything, but um, yeah. Yeah. I noticed that the Californians tend to be very, uh, like sort of a rich tomato sauce oriented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sounds so delicious. I love it. Yeah. How did you end up in uh, in California, in, in Oakland, from New York City? How did you end up there? Well, well, you know, I had really tried to and thought of moving to California a few times in the past for different reasons, not even, you know, as a restaurant person. Um, so it's kind of had been on my radar. And then, you know, I love wine and wine country. And I wanted to explore uh, that area more. And then I had some friends who lived here. I wasn't finding opportunities that I wanted in New York. And yeah, I just thought, you know, okay, let me just go try something new. I've moved many times during my career for new opportunities. Um, But when I got out here, (laughs) I I really felt at home, which is, you know, how the title kind of has a 
it's not just California's soul as in soul food, but like my soul. Like I really feel like I found myself out here. I found my people and my, you know, sense of belonging in place. Um, so yeah, that, you know, I'd already decided to move prior to 9-11. I was in New York for 9-11. Um, but, you know, obviously it kind of made the, the decision to move um, a little bit more yeah. poignant. Um, yeah, it's been a good move. It's just been a great move. My parents met out here. I think I mentioned, and, you know, I had great aunts and uncles living out here. So it was definitely part of my heritage that, you know, I, I grew up kind of focused on Virginia and Louisiana, but, um, this just makes so much more sense for me, especially being entrepreneurial and, um, pioneering, what was Oakland like in 2001? I think we we write and, and talk about Oakland in the modern times and, yeah. you know, absolutely one of the best food cities in the in the country. I mean, just so vibrant. But back then, what was it like in 2001? Yeah, so I, I didn't get here. I was in San Francisco 2001, and then I came to Oakland. Uh, well, actually, Alameda in 2002, but traveling through Oakland to get to work. And I was like, wow, this is an interesting place. Look at all these amazing, you know, historical buildings and, you know, having lived in New York city in the late eighties and seeing like the transformation to Brooklyn and all that, I was like, this city has so much potential, but it was literally like sagebrush. Like we're rolling down the streets. Like it was, <laughs> it yeah. was empty, you know, and it was sketchy um you know you it was probably dangerous but again having lived in new york city i wasn't like you know i knew how to like watch out for myself um, you had 1980s energy new york energy it did yeah and but what i noticed there was like for eateries it was either mom and pop or you know low end um ethnic cuisine or there was some established like, you know, Beowulf and Alavetto were here. Um, and then a couple places in Jack London Square, Scots and, you know, but there was nothing that was like that sort of neighborhood. You could eat there a couple times a week or a few times a month, you know, to get your regular like roast chicken or fried chicken or a good, you know, egg sandwich or something like that, um, that had a vibe, you know, and I had seen some of those places, you know, really do well in New York. So that was kind of the, um, you know, my thought behind, I was like, well, and I didn't really see, um, a lot of African-American owned establishments that were, you know, contemporary. And so I just wanted to create something that was kind of a combo of that. And it worked, succeeded. Yeah. Four seasons. You uh, you 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 organize your book by four seasons, yeah. and I'd I'd like to hear a little bit about that approach because I think California seasons are different from <laughs> a lot of the parts of the country. <laughs> yeah, they definitely are, but it just but I still like I really value the seasonality, um, availability of produce, and yeah, we have some longer seasons in other parts of the country. Um, but I, you know, a lot of my colleagues too, whose food I love to eat, they do the same. And it, it just felt a little bit more natural than, or, you know, organizing it by, you know, meal period or protein or fish or whatever. I don't know. It just, yeah, it just felt more natural and organic for me. 
I love it. You know, it really does uh, tell a story, and I, I, I just liked seeing what w- winter in California is like, which always makes me want to visit in the wintertime. Yeah, and, and hopefully it will inspire people around the country to think in that way as well. You know, again, they might not have the same, um, you know, full array of availability, but they can start thinking maybe more like that. How do you describe the style of your cooking in the, in the book and the recipes? I mean, it's varied in, in the cool in a cool way. Like it's it's really it's venturous and there's there's all sorts of different techniques happening. How do you describe your style? Yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, you know, I've ha- always had a I've had a big repertoire for many years that I haven't really fully executed because of, you know, to a certain extent the constraints of the concept I created. But you know, I did that as a restaurant tour and thinking of business, like you, you have to contain to a certain extent, because, you know, if you try to do everything for everybody or everything you wanted, people are going to be a little confused and they don't know what yeah. they're going to get when they walk in the door. And it's just not the best business model. So this is more like, um, you know, just stuff, food that I love to eat and that I would want to put in front of people like at a casual you know, weekend dinner party. Um, and there's definitely influences from my training in France and, um, you know, my love of cuisines of other cultures, many other cu- cultures that I've discovered either from reading cookbooks or eating at restaurants with those cuisines or, you know, personally traveling to those places. You get into some history in the book and we, we alluded to this in the beginning when you when I asked you about some of the the sidebars you, you wrote uh, profiling some of the makers, but you also just talk about history in Californian food. And I have a couple specific questions I want to talk about. First is Roscoe's chicken and waffles. I mean, that's the other thing. When I moved out to California, I discovered chicken and waffles. I really, I feel like I vaguely heard about it as a dish in New York, but it seemed to have been really popular out here made popular by uh, Roscoe's. There was an offshoot in Jekyll and Square here in Oakland that I guess changed ownership and became the House of Chicken and Waffles. Um, And I put fried chicken on my menu and I was like, oh, we're open for breakfast. I should serve it with waffles. And I created Mm -hmm. a unique waffle recipe, never ever anticipating like the popularity that it would have, you know, and that's what we became known for. But I feel like California, especially Roscoe's in Southern California, really popularized the the dish of chicken and waffles. Absolutely, it seems like it's such an iconic LA LA restaurant and and combination. Yes. Even though it obviously has it tr- traces back to the American South. Yes. And the other uh, part, uh, historical moment in the book is the Black Panther Party's free breakfast program which I was unaware of. And I like how you, you know, paint that picture in the book. What was it exactly? Yeah, I think that was really, really important. Um, You know, the Black Panther Party has been given a bad rap just because of, you know, as like this militant organization, but they actually did a lot for the Black community, especially in West Oakland, where it was started and providing, um, school-aged children with free breakfasts and free lunch. And, um, you know, I had the pleasure of interviewing Erica Huggins, who was a Black Panther on my podcast. And, you know, 
it just really like they they're just it was admirable what they were trying to create because it really came from a place of loving the community which is again you know I, th- I think you know this book for me is a little bit of showing my love for California um as my last book showed my love for Oakland community and um and feeding people and yeah they feeding yeah. everyone was really important to them feeding people is is really important to me feeding people well, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and and it's really cool that you point out the Black Panthers' uh, involvement in the community and and how food, yes, played a role. That was great. Yeah, uh, I feel I, I feel good about like I think there's some history here in this cookbook that may you know introduce people to um, or introduce people to history that they would not have ordinarily known about or you know or that are that's written and been written in books that are a little bit more specific, maybe a little drier, if you will. Yeah. Um, cookbooks tend to attract like a variety of people. So if like, you know, I open like, you know, one or two people's minds or, you know, expose like some of the, you know, some good, you know, historical points that they didn't know about. It's great. I'm really happy about that. I have to ask you right now, can you shout out a couple of California restaurants that and chefs that you're loving on right now? Oh, sure. Well, um, there's a chef and restaurant tour named Amana. I don't know Amana's last name, but she opened a restaurant called High Felicia here in Oakland. And I forgot what she calls it, but it's like it's sort of like high end, but you know, it's kind of a little renegade. And um mm-hmm. they're doing a really good job, you know young folks in their twenties, young to me, at least, um, you know, giving a high level of service and hospitality that I appreciate. So I think they're doing a great job and that's the, that's what's coming to mind right now. Top of mind right now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Definitely have to shout that one out. Great. Yeah. Tanya, we asked all guests in the taste podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning there is no deadline or budget, meaning you have unlimited funds, what would that book be? Oh, can you repeat that? I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no. I'll start again. We asked all guests on the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, it means you have no deadline, or budget, meaning you have unlimited money to write this book, what would that dream book be? Oh, I mean, I would love to follow like the Afro-French diaspora. You know, I always... You know, I was trying to open a restaurant uh, when I first moved here called Patois. And I just wanted, like, everywhere the French have colonized an African mm-hmm. community, basically. You know, so it's like Morocco and places in the Caribbean and Louisiana and just and go back to France and just sort of do that loop and connection. And, um, yeah, just kind of tie it all together. And obviously I'd have to travel to all of those places, Senegal, you know, 100%. Everywhere. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Take it on the road. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, is there a it, dish that you would want to like dive into, like a it, recipe? It possibly can happen. Um, yeah. Because I really want to go to Guadalupe and Martinique. I've been wanting to go there for years. I don't know. I think, you know, just somewhere in the the stew area, the jambalaya and, you know, is really like a riff on jollof and all these different like rice dishes that, you know, kind of follow that trail. I don't know. 
Sounds so delicious. I hope I, I, it sounds like you're, you're maybe working on this book idea. <laughs> I'm not, but I think I should actually, that might yeah. be it. <laughs> It'd be great. Yeah. Tanya Hull, thank you for joining the taste podcast. Thank you for having me. The taste podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.